think that uh, John is probably in Ephesus and that the letter is written to the churches surrounding Ephesus and that after the destruction of Jerusalem that Ephesus has kind of become the uh, key center for Christianity and that the apostle then perhaps the last surviving apostle after the uh, 70 AD that John uh, is centered there at Ephesus uh, he may uh, we think that the epistles and the gospel may in fact be written at about the same time um, and so it's the same same period of time um, let me read then 1 John 1 1 to 4 what was from the beginning what we have heard What we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested and we have seen and testified and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also. So that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. And so the language is that of the gospel, you know, in the beginning. And he talks about uh, the word. And now he is in a sense summing up the gospel and moving on. The gospel is that which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked on. Um, maybe if we think here of scenes from the book of John in which Jesus you know, had washed the feet of John in which he fed them the disciples fish John we know leaned upon the breast of Jesus at the last supper maybe he's referencing here the time when Thomas after the resurrection puts his hand in the side of Jesus and in the nail prints in his hands um this is the, we know these are episodes specifically recorded in the gospel. He must have been one of the disciples present when the Lord came on the same day in which he arose from the dead. And he showed all of them, you know, they all ate with him. And we know that the, the, the epistle and the gospel, the style, the diction, uh, the very spirit is very similar between the epistle and the gospel. And they'll use language like the word, the life, the light, and his name was the word of God. And especially then they agree in the picture of the commendation of God's love to us. I think it's also the case that the gospel and the epistle are written to the same sort of false teaching. That if we're in the, you know, maybe as late as the 80s, uh, maybe the 90s that uh, it's a period in which uh, a kind of uh, spiritualized Greek Christian understanding has come about. And so John is warning, he's got a couple of warning passages, very strong in in the epistle. He says, children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard, the Antichrist is coming. Even many Antichrists have appeared For this is now the last hour. They went out from us. And we think this is the case with these Gnostics. That they're Christians who are perverting the gospel. uh, Especially after the discovery of the Nag Hammadi manuscripts. We look at Gnosticism then as a kind of Christian heresy. 
But John says they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out. And this is the characteristic thing we'll see in the history of the church. Who goes? Who splits up? Well, it's the heretics who are the ones who would leave, who would split the church. And John says this is a proof so that it would be shown that they are all are not of us. In chapter 4, he tells them to test the spirits. Don't believe every spirit. Uh, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And he says, this is the way you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which we have heard that is coming and now is already in the world. And this seems to be the prime teaching that these Gnostics would say, well, uh, there may have been this man Jesus and there may have been Christ, but the two are not the same, that the man is not divine. Uh, And that in some way, uh, this is just an appearance of God. We can call this docetism or Gnosticism. But the idea is there's a complete separation between the material world and the spiritual world. And in this, we cannot know the essence of God, or we only know God through his effects, or that in some way God is not really available to us in the person of Jesus. And this is the tendency that I think both the gospel and the epistle are written to overcome. And I believe that this isn't just a first century problem. I think the problem is still with us. This is a corrective to any theology which would understand who God is on any basis other than in in and through Christ. It's a corrective to any theology that imagines that in Christ we have something less than God. So the nature of the false teaching is to deny that sin breaks up our fellowship with God. In other words, they're going to, and John is going to emphasize this, they have the idea that what you do in the flesh, it makes no, no difference. What you do ethically, it has no difference. It doesn't affect our relationship with God because what we do with our bodies is considered irrelevant to our spiritual relationship. And so such a premise is built upon a series of false presumptions. The idea that the body and the spirit are separate realities is the first false presumption. The idea that interior and exterior are realms apart from one another. The idea that faith and doing things are completely separate. Uh, That faith is what we believe in our head, you know, and doing stuff is what we do with our bodies. This is already there as a false teaching in Gnosticism. And I believe it's a false teaching that's still with us. We need this epistle. We need this message from John Because the false teaching of the first century is prototypical of the false teaching, I think, of all time. It will always fall into some sort of dualism, to some notion that we don't have really have access to God in Christ. There is among the early Gnostics, and I I think even here, a kind of antinomianism. The idea of the body is a mere envelope, and it's covering 
the human spirit. You know, this is sort of Plato's idea that the body is the prison house of the soul. They claim that the spirit cannot be contaminated by the deeds of the body. Others, according to Irenaeus, thought if a person was truly spiritual, that he could not sin. He was beyond any defilement. This should sound a little familiar because there are actually Christian uh, denominations that teach this. John says that any man who says he does not sin is a liar. He's very blatant and he's, I think, attacking this false teaching throughout. He said, you, uh, they, if you're going to be righteous, you have to practice righteousness. Little children, this is 1 John 3, 7 and 9. Make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous. Just as he is righteous. That is, you can't be righteous in your spirit and practice evil with your body. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose. And this is key, I think. Why did Christ come to destroy the works of the devil? No one who is born of God practices sin. You can't be a Christian, John is saying, and be a practitioner of sin. Because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. So the false teachers, he is going to say, they do not confess Jesus and they do not confess their sin. They do not even admit to being sinful. He says, those who will not acknowledge the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh is of the deceiver. This is the work of the Antichrist. Anything that smacks of this idea of a dualism, of a divide between God and man in Christ, I think we need to be aware of, beware of. The opponents undoubtedly believed in Christ. They talk about Christos, the anointed, but this Christ was manifest, but not truly in the flesh. And so they're going to use the word gnosis, knowing. That is, the way we know Christ is not through the flesh, but through the spirit. And they're going to divide these things. Irenaeus complained that the Gnostics falsify the words of the Lord and become evil interpreters of what has been well said, thus destroying the faith of many people, turning them away under the pretext of a special knowledge. They believed in this special or secret knowledge which others do not have. And so what made the apologetic task of Irenaeus particularly difficult was that Gnosticism it was mixed in with Christians. Even up into 150 AD, it was not strictly, you know, a, a separate sect. By We know that it eventually does become a, a separate sect. And so Irenaeus' defense of the orthodoxy of the fourth gospel, and I think of the writings, you know, Paul, Irenaeus knows Polycarp and Polycarp knows John. That's how we're very close here to the writer of John. Uh, he defends the fourth gospel saying that it was written precisely to answer the dualistic and docetic errors of Serenthus, who was a Gnostic teacher. And he goes on to claim that none of the heretics could assent to first John, or, or rather to John 1.14, the word became flesh. 
That seems to be the divider. And that's the thing that gets emphasized in the epistle. Their heretical views included, you know, distinguishing the creator from the father of Christ, who is the creator's son, Jesus, and they separated Jesus from the impassable son. Christ descends on Jesus, and then he reascends, you know, to the fullness of God. So that they've got this divided up. They've kind of, in their false understanding, you have God, and God will never come into association with creation or the earth. And so uh, it was a Christian heresy, and this becomes true with the Gnostic discovery of the Gnostic library. Uh, It is clear that particular Gnostics that Irenaeus is contending with are themselves members of the larger Christian community. And these Gnostics, he says, though, are worse than pagans. For the pagans at least ascribe first place to the deity of the universe, the creator of the universe, even though they may not worship the creator, but worship the creation. He identifies three characteristics, Irenaeus does, and we find these same three characteristics, I think, in the epistle. He says they're going to uh, they're going to say that there is a, a difference between the pneumatic or the spiritual and the fleshly. Uh, there's a difference between the psychical, the inner and the outer, and the material and, you know, the heavenly. There's a great distance between the Father and humanity, and they picture it as being bridged by these eons who uh, left the Father uh, and they're of this secondary demiurge, and it's a kind of gradation. It's very Aristotelian in many senses. If you think of Aristotle's rings of reality coming out from the unmoved mover. And so Irenaeus accused the Gnostics of syncretism. What they're doing, they're naming these you know, intermediator eons as deities that are of the pagan religions from which they've come. Uh, they're just pagan gods that they're worshiping. And so the false teaching which threatens the church, which would disconnect human actions from the spiritual realm, it would disconnect. And so I think this is part of John's emphasis on love because it would actually disconnect one believer from another as it disconnects all of us from God. He says they're walking in the darkness And this walking, he's going to use the language of walking. You're either walking in the light or you're walking in the darkness. And this walking in darkness entails alienation and hatred of the brother. And John says the one who hates his brother in 1 John 2.11 is in the darkness. He walks in the darkness. He does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. In other words, I think it's all of a part, all of a piece here that these people don't care Uh, for one another. They're seeing salvation as a kind of individualistic secret salvation that I do in my head. I have this secret knowing. And the the picture is of a kind of Christianity that is not practiced. It's just believed in some sense. The world is steeped in violence, hatred, and war. And the the picture is this violence and hatred is itself a false way of living. And John is saying this is dispelled in Christ. 
Just a little passage from Isaiah 9, 2-7. Every boot of the booted warrior in the battle and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. Um, the writer's authority as an eyewitness then to this Emmanuel, to this God with witness, the one we've seen, heard, and handled. There's a kind of gradation here. Seeing is more convincing than hearing, handling even more than seeing. And so I think that the false teaching here, docetism, Platonism, Aristotelianism, Gnosticism, we could just extend it out. The Kantianism, Calvinism. The tendency to sin, I believe, is a tendency to dualism that we're seeing then in these Gnostic teachers. This is always the characteristic of false teaching, in which the reality of God, our prime reality, is one step removed so that the sign, you know, this is, this is actually Lutheran nominalism. The idea that we deal then not just, we don't deal with the reality of God, but we just have the signs, not the, the, the thing itself. But John is a book of signs in which the sign and the thing that it signifies, God is with us, Emmanuel is with us. We've seen him, we've touched him, we felt him. He cannot say it any stronger than he does in these opening words. Um, So knowing for these people is not knowing Christ in the flesh, but knowing is a a kind of escape from the world, an escape from death, as we talked about uh, this morning. And maybe this is just the, the false teaching that's introduced in Genesis. You can either believe in God and know God, or you can know the knowledge of good and evil, and that's your choices. And good and evil, of course, already speaks of a dualism between the good and the evil, and an interdependence upon the, of the two upon one another. And so maybe we're just dealing with the original sin here, the original lie, and it's going to manifest itself in all sorts of ways, and Gnosticism is just one of the characteristic prototypes of the original sin. They take darkness, the devil, evil, falsehood as a necessary and real counter to the good. And so what John is doing, he's going to deal in these dualistic categories, light, dark, life, death, you know. But the light is overcoming the darkness. Light is overcoming death or or, or life is overcoming death. So throughout the gospel, throughout the epistle, there's this battle between knowing, seeing, believing, darkness. And the darkness then is just the the world, the cosmos. John is going to use the term cosmos in the epistle like he does in the gospel. He says that Christ is penetrating the darkness of this cosmos. And yet the cosmos has not comprehended it, has not overtaken it. He progresses in the gospel, he says, by the end of the gospel, light is firmly established. And then in 1 John, he says, the darkness is passing by and the true light is already shining. And so John unfolds this battle in a progressive manner. 
The darkness is passing, the light is penetrating, and the light is defeating the darkness. Um, So John systematically, he sets forth a kind of apparent dualism, not to affirm the dualism or to affirm, affirm this agonism, but to empty this antagonism, to show how Christ has confronted the darkness and defeated it, how he's confronted death and defeated it. Uh, And he's establishing then a community that does not define itself in and through this difference, but through identifying with Christ. And the Gnostics would undo this. The way that Miroslav Volf has put this, the aim of God's redemptive activity is to overcome oppositional dualities. Darkness versus light, below versus above, falsehood versus truth, so as to leave room in creation only for reconciled differences. By becoming flesh, the word intimately untied its, or rather united itself precisely to that which was which has alienated itself from God. Moreover, God loved the world that was opposed to God, and the incarnate incarnate word became the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. And so, yes, there is this positing of a supposed dualism. And John in both the gospel and the epistle is showing that Christ overcomes. He defeats the dualism. And the ultimate refusal of God in the attempt to create a world absent of God is really what constitutes one half of this thing. And the way it's defeated, now judgment has come on this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. In both the epistle and the gospel, the defeat of Satan, the defeat of the prince of the power of this world, the overcoming of this one who would divide the world up, is the way in which this dualism is undone. And this is precisely what the Gnostics would deny, right? The death of Christ. Because God cannot die on a cross. Christ is only spirit, and spirit cannot die. And so John emphasizes the embodied nature of the faith. And he provides us several markers. Some would say it doesn't matter how you walk. John says you have to walk in righteousness. Some would say it doesn't matter what you do with your body. John says that you have to live this thing out. Uh, You have to be in fellowship uh, with one another. And so those who say it does not matter how I treat other people, those whose life is marked by oppressive actions towards others, and they say they're good Christians, I think that the Apostle John would say, you're a liar. You're of the Antichrist. This isn't Christianity. Um, The claim to be without sin. If we say that we have no sin, John says, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. And so John's opponents denied that evil could harm their enlightened spirits. They claimed to be righteous. They did not acknowledge sin in their lives. I think this is the first test of a heretic. Can they acknowledge, can they confess sin in their lives? John says, if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. We have to acknowledge both things, that we fail, but that we practice, we are practitioners of righteousness. 
So, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. If we say that we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, we lie. We do not practice the truth. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, this is a sign then that the light is penetrating the darkness. Sin has come into the world and this sin constitutes a world, a cosmos of darkness unto itself that John you know, is saying is being overcome. And of course the picture here is that walking this faith out is an active verbal kind of thing. Uh, it has to do with the way we live, the practices that we put into place, uh, how we... Uh, you know, can you be deceived in your practices? John says yes. That uh, the passage between walking in darkness and claiming it makes no difference, and claiming to have sin no what sin whatsoever, is a, is a is a, a kind of practice that uh, is to be found first of all in the practice of confession of sin. He's faithful and righteous and he will forgive us of our sins. He will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Verse 9. So a way of describing this darkness is to say it's a lie. It's a deception. It's a non-reality. It's a nothing. And this is the way that John will picture it throughout. That they will make themselves nothing. They will make themselves practitioners of darkness. They will separate what they do and what they think and this amounts to nothing so the power which the devil wields is ultimately the power of negation the power of death the the power of a lie and John is saying this is why Christ came into the world to defeat Satan to defeat this deception for the atoning power of Christ to be effective in your life you have to practice the truth and the first you know, notice the first of all that truth is a practice and lying is a practice. Both are ways of walking, ways of living. Um, so the power of death which Satan wields is his means of gaining a foothold and the cross is the final and full means of God of defeating this foothold that Satan has in the world. Uh, through his death, you know, Christ addresses the original lie of Satan. You won't die. And as God in Christ exposes and overcomes the reality of death, uh, so this battle between Christ and Satan takes place through the pawns of Satan. John is picturing this as a war that's already been won. Satan has already been defeated. As the writer of Hebrews says, which has a lot of parallels with John, he's delivered us those who served through, who through, uh, through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So, as a consequence, oppositional dualities within the creation overcome. Enmity between men and women, between Jews and Samaritans, Jews and Greeks, uh, are overcome in the John, John's picture of the God who we worship in spirit and truth. So the conclusion of John, that God defeats evil in Christ, and love then is through the word. He says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. God's presence is in and through the word. And this is there in the opening passage. And my father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. 
There's no divide here. There's no dualism. There's no point of separation. In John, Jesus as the Word fulfills the function of the law and the temple in that obedience to God and entry into God's presence are made possible in and through the world. So the very opposite of dualism is at work here. God who is love loves the estranged world to the point of assuming flesh. Here is Emmanuel, God with us. In order, he assumes flesh to suffer and die at the hands of the world. And in this way, God not only opens the road for the world's return, but attracts it back to him, brings it back to his presence. God loves first, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And this love on the cross is, uh, enacts the love of God so that human beings may love God and God's creatures in return. So in short, that's the message of 1 John. It's a short epistle in which we have a direct confrontation with this false teaching and evil. And I think a very clear picture then of what redemption and atonement look like. Let's sing our hymn again.